Hey, Danny. Hey, everybody. You're looking luscious today. Happy International Women's Day. It is, isn't it? And I'm looking at one of the finest women ever oh. created. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> I should have you on here every day with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, every Tuesday's enough. I come in small doses. Ladies and yes. gentlemen, on International Women's Day, we'd like to welcome you to our latest episode of Doing It Sober Live, available across all corners of the world exclusively to Fireside Chat. It's your favorite ectomorph, Chris Nell, and across from me, the world's favorite mesomorph, Daniela Park. Yes. <sighs> in fact, we were uh, DMing each other just across uh, a couple of minutes ago, and I kept asking the question, why are you in such a good mood, Daniela? She said, oh, I guess it's just one of those uh, days where you're feeling mighty positive. But I guess, I'm guessing it's because it's International Women's Day, isn't it? Come on. Well, yeah. Admit it. <laughs> <laughs> it There's so many terrible things going on in the world with the war. Sure. And there's 300,000 Ukrainians having a baby in the next three months. So now imagine all those women, how they feel right now as refugees. They have nowhere to go. Yeah. It's, I you know, it's it really, think. it's a lot going on out there. Yeah, absolutely. I keep them in my prayers every given day. You. you know, um, you have to give props to Vladimir Zelensky, who's literally putting himself on the line as president of the Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, putting, for fear of repeating myself, his own life on the line. That's literally sacrificing yourself for your own people, and we keep Ukraine in our thoughts and prayers. We were supposed to have a guest on today, but I'm guessing he's either running late or he completely forgot. So let's just wing it and see where we go. You know, I'm not made up, Daniela's not made up, so let's just take it as it comes. Yeah, Danny, I, I want to ask you something. Sure. How long have you been sober now exactly? Uh, September 11, 2006, so... Holy moly. 15 years and... Over 15 years. 9-11, hey? Yes. That was well, the day that I called 911 because I had my stomach lining erupt open. Mm. So not only was it 9-11 the date, it was uh, also me calling 911 to <laughs> save my life. So it, it, it was kind of funny how it happened on that day. Such a, a memorable day for me, for sure. Well, of course. But the actual question I should be asking is, how's your thinking involved in the years ensuing in your sobriety? Well, it doesn't just happen. I think we've talked about that before. It's a thing you have to work at. And I, sure. I really got a lot of help from, uh, you know, having a sponsor because I had no idea how to live. I mean, I didn't have a sober breath for 15 years prior to the day I actually did get sober. So how was I supposed to know how to go about my daily life without having a drink or a drug? I mean, that, that doesn't mm. even, it doesn't register for me. I, I don't know how to do that. So uh, yeah. I had to have a lot of people to lean on. And, you know, when I worked the 12 steps, I learned a lot. And it's so good because not only did I admit that I had a problem, you know, to myself and to my spiritual power, um, <laughs> which caused me to actually gain a connection with a higher power that I did not have before. And it was so exciting for me to have this connection and be aware of it because I never had that, you know, I never, Oh, please God, don't let me get this ticket. You know, now I'm, sh I'm seeing things that I know that are God, or I'm able to, 
literally write down something that's troubling me, put it in the toilet and give it to God, you know, <laughs> and flush it away. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to put your hands up. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to say with regards to changing my thinking as well. You know, laughing at the stupidest things. I'll give you a rough example. Today being Tuesday, tomorrow is hump day. What do you call a week without Wednesday? What? Humphrey. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course. And that's what I love about this. You know, uh, I'm finding myself really in a change state of mind or rather a change of mind. You know, when I start wondering about what have you, what have you been wondering about? I've been wondering, you know, you've mentioned it a few times that you've had this certain uh, spark, change of thought, and, you know, life path, and what what happened? Can I call it an aha moment? Oh, yes. Look, the pandemic screwed us all over, big time, hand over Mm -hmm. fist. When I met you, I was volunteering for no money at this inkling little radio station. I was trying to get content on the air to make people think, not tell them what to do, think. Because whether you agree with me or not, people don't think. They don't (laughs) question. They don't wonder. It's just a fact of, are we going to survive another day? So at this aha moment after two years, I realized, why is this all happening to me? Because I screwed up phenomenally so badly. And I want to get him on the show. Jay Barner, my surrogate brother from Canada, said to me, you need to start getting out of your own way. Paradox, how do you get out of your own way? Do you just stand idly by and let life flash beyond you in a sort of fast-forward option on your DVR player? Or do you actually say, you know what, let's see how long the arm is. Is Am I making sense by any given measure? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I love it. I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. So as a result... I've now been really taking a lot of inventory about my thinking. How do I react in times of stress? You just mentioned the Ukraine. A lot of people are up in arms would be the wrong term, but rather they are overtly concerned. Because let's face it, the big thing about Ukraine is it's bordering on Crimea. If we think about a couple of years ago, the reason why Russia wanted to invade Crimea was because of the fact that there's natural gas and oil. So one could assume that the same is starting to happen here. Just on spec. But bringing it back to the conversation at hand, I would rather say if I control my thinking to the sense of why me or not why me, try me. I'm starting to discover a lot of dimensions of my personality that was, dare I say, covered up by years of abuse because of wrought thinking. And Daniele, you've shared with me on the personal level as well in this regard. But uh, you start to really become more attentive to the good things in life. I've had cancer. You currently are dealing with an autoimmune disease. When you come to that, not why me, but try me, it's more of a fact of, you know what, I've been through all of this shit, ring it. Because I'm in this place of complete serenity provided by my higher power or whatever you it is you want to believe in. And it's taking a lot of flack off of my shoulders, that weight off my shoulders. And for the first time in almost four years, I'm starting to enjoy myself. I'm starting to enjoy myself being here with you, starting to discover new skills, etc., etc., etc. I can't put it in any more finite words than that. It's That's a process beautiful. of discovery. That is awesome. And you know what? There's still so much more to be revealed. 
and the fact that you're allowing it. I think we all have the choice. Do we allow ourselves to evolve, change? Because it's not easy. Mm. Um, And when we're ready, you know, they say uh, when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And I love that. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. I'm going to remember that. It's so true. It really is. Well, I'm going to be very transparent here. I've been in a couple of management positions in my life in the media. I've done a lot of management work where I have people working under me. Now, you've got a business of your own. Every month, there's a target. So when you keep that number in your back mind, obviously, you're going to become stressed because as it approaches closer and closer to the deadline, you start to become panicky. Your verbiage verges on that of a dictator. And your attitude towards your employees, if you should have any, becomes, for the lack of a better word, extremely secular. I remember before I became a DJ, I used to work as a manager in a warehouse supplying car parts. And uh, mechanics who used to work under me used to pull all, all sorts of stunts because, you know, you have to follow rules and a routine. And the one day, it was approaching month end, I just lost my temper. And I do admit that's a character defect. I think it's a, I hope not I'm going to get hate mail or death threats, but I think it is a defect of the male gene, gender, is a very bad temper. Reason being, we've got overt amounts of, of testosterone and adrenaline in the system, which causes us to become irrational in times of duress, I think. And in so doing, oh, we've got Laura. Hi, Laura. And my friend Woody's here again. I love it. Hey, Woody. Listen, folks, if you would like to submit any questions with regards to what it is about sobriety you're interested in, please post it. We would be... We would love it to have some interaction. We've been gagging for it for quite some time. (laughs) But now, as a producer, um, I did what your old man did. It's also high pressure. It's not so glamorous as what a lot of people think. Spoiler. But under that same amount of duress, I find myself becoming calm. You know, I had a conversation with my mother today where I said it's easy to complain. And I find a lot of my colleagues complaining about complete spit. I should actually say SH1T, but I'm just putting it a lot more (laughs) Diplomatic than usual. Because you've been in that situation before. You have experienced losing your temper from that previous experience. And what what did it get you? Absolutely fuck all. And now you've had that lesson with you. And it rubs off on the people under you. They respect you more. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> they communicate with you more. Holy cow. That never happened before. And thirdly, some of them actually go on their knees, figuratively speaking, and praise you like a god because then you are a leader. Right. That's wow. what I was just going to say. You know, you're a leader. So having those kinds of revelations, you can't dictate it to someone. You have to experience it for yourself. Yes. And, you know, I've spoken to other people who are devotees of sobriety and they look at me with eyes as wide as saucers, but it is effectually true. You can't dictate to someone or exclaim to someone in so many finite amount of words what that kind of freedom, that new kind of experience, that new kind of interest entails if you just take a complete catamaran in thinking. And Daniela, I'm not soft-soaping you. You planted the seed with me two years ago with how your thinking is. Sure, we are human. Sure, there will come lingering moments of doubt. But holding on to that peace, that truth, you planted that seed with me. And that's ah, where it starts. That's interesting. And, and here this we is the are. part where you normally say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty awesome. I, you know, and, and here we are uh, doing the show together. You were the first person I thought of when 
I thought, you know what? I could really use uh, a partner here. <laughs> and I think we're a great team. And the, and it actually makes me so happy when you tell me that you're having these revelations and stuff and, and feeling a little more confident. And it makes me really, really happy. Let's put a caveat on that. Caveats, effective use of English. Folks, one fine day, Daniela and I were communicating, not on a regular basis, but at certain times we would correspond. Out of the clear blue, she asks me, would you like to do a show with me? And the first words that jumped to my mind is, what the fuck? <laughs> I thought. I think you were trying to get out of it, to be honest. No, I wasn't. No, oh, I wasn't. Okay. Honest, honest, honest to the higher okay. power above, I wasn't. Okay. Because Fireside is a new is a new concept it's an exclusive platform and you know i'm regardless of the fact that i'm a millennial i don't run to technology as my generation would yeah but upon investigating that idea that old richard branson quote screw it let's do it came to the fray <laughs> and today to quote you now here we sit yeah i love doing these on tuesdays yeah it's awesome you know we've had some great guests and and for the next two months i've got every week booked and we've got some amazing people coming on not every a few are uh they're not in addiction one is uh she's in france she's a tr really an expert on trauma she had an eating disorder she'll be on next week laura zen uh, she's she's the zen woman and she's pretty incredible. I'm I'm excited to have her come on. Kemp and we Monica. Some awesome guests, you know, we're the the main purpose for me to do this is so I can learn. I love it, it's almost like a, a meeting for me, like a, a twelve step meeting, because I get to learn from other people. Um, I hear what you're saying. I wanted to laugh tonight. I'm a little disappointed. I don't know where Des went, but I looked for his name on here. I didn't see him. And uh, Des, where are you, son? <laughs> I'm not sure what happened. We did confirm, but it, it, things happen. He's in Ireland. Sure. So who knows what's going in on the in the merry Ireland. month of June. From me home, I started, left the girls of June, nearly broken hearted, saluted father dear. Sorry, you were saying? <laughs> Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I blanked out. It, it's, uh, I don't know what type of guests you have on your cuppa. Um, your podcast, because I know you have... Well, mine has been predominantly about sobriety. i still got a couple on the back burner that I've recorded since December. I need to start getting to them as, as fast as I can. Ever since I started this job, it's been a fact of I'm on call 24-7. Mm. But uh, to answer your question duly, it has been focusing on sobriety. But the funny thing is, as you quite rightly say, Aspects of trauma, aspects of narcissism, aspects of dealing with the past. Themes extending beyond sobriety have popped up. So some people might call it coincidence. I would think more of serendipity. It's going to be a, a, a very interesting exploration period. And folks, when you're hearing about the show for the very first time, whether you've been watching this on YouTube or, for a matter of fact, you are downloading this on, on Apple iTunes or listening on Spotify or whatnot, please come here. Talk to us about your experiences with trauma, codependency, a gateway to freedom, whatever the case may be. We want to hear your story and we want to have fun with you. Tell us your story. This is quintessentially what the show is all about. Again, to our audiences, like our regular Woody, Laura, it's lovely to see you as well. Talk to us. Don't be afraid. We won't bite hard. <laughs> How do we 
read you, the uh, stuff that comes in. I'm trying to see mm, where the comments would show up. Let's have a look-see. You know what? I'm going to do something out of the ordinary here. I'm going to invite Laura to speak. Awesome. Laura, are you on the line? Let's give a second for Laura. Or for that fact, let's invite Woody to speak. If I can just get the menu open, come talk to us. Hello, folks. Hello, Laura. How are you? Well, thanks to yourself, dearest. So thank you for doing this show. Um, I'm not on my headphones. I'm not on anything. I'm actually making dinner and talking to you. So if you hear beeping in the background. We can hear you loud and clear. Okay, good. Uh, so I think uh, I wanted to tune in and get some perspective on on trauma, on how people kind of deal with the uh, changes of life. I'm doing a lot of speaking all of a sudden at, in this moment of uh, kind of people reemerging. And people in my profession are looking for some guidance on the idea of trust um, and how over the last few months being that we've been so isolated uh our trust muscles are a little out of whack and i'd like your thoughts on that danny ladies first seeing that it's international women's day okay as far as i i guess i'm maybe chris you can help me out trust as in trusting the process of recovery of sobriety or just trusting i think trusting themselves to trust one another yeah i surmise that would be the case. So what she's saying is, how does one move on? If you've had an extensive history or period of trauma and these memories niggle in the back of your mind, no matter how long you're trying to move past it, mm -hmm. how do you eventually bridge the gap of getting to trust either in yourself or with one another? How far am I off the money there, Laura? <laughs> For me, when I came into sobriety, I was a broken woman. I had uh, had abusive relationships. I was um, doing things, putting myself in harm's way. And when I got you know, sober, I started doing things that were esteemable, esteemable acts, uh, helping others, returning the extra money that I was given at the grocery store, stuff that I would normally not do little things. And I also took a head-on look at my issues. And for the first five years, I was doing really well. I guess they call it a pink cloud. You know, you're feeling really good. And then at five years, I hit a wall and I was like, okay, I want to kill myself now. But wait, why? And I didn't know why. Because uh, I had uh, taken a look at all of the things that happened in my life and wrote down 500 pages of each person that I had harmed I had gone to everybody that I could go to to make amends and whether it was it was meeting with someone writing a a letter or sitting by somebody's grave you go to pretty much any length to get better because if you sit with all those resentments and all that trauma eventually you know they say you're going to pick up a drink so when I got to that 5 year point my sponsor said, okay, well, you've done the steps already. You've looked at all these things about your life. Maybe you should see a therapist and we'll just do a quick run through of these steps again. What did we miss? And almost to a year of the day, she had mentioned, go to a male therapist and try to get a connection with them. Because I was still dating guys that were cheating on me in sobriety. Why is this happening? You know, everything else is going great. Why am I picking these idiots and, and putting up with it too? And so almost a year to the day, I 
said to myself, this therapist is getting me nowhere. I have not, I literally hate coming here. It's just, there's nothing, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this. And then on that next week that I went, boom, something came up that I never even thought about. We, we went through it and it made such a Yahoo, aha moment for me to go, wow. Okay. So this wasn't supposed to be revealed until now because I don't think I was ready to hear it because it was heavy. And then right after that, I ended up meeting my husband. It was almost like everything just happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen. I was already trusting that everything was going to be good before that, because that's what I've learned is that if I don't trust or accept the things that happen in my life, then I am going to drink or drug or be a very angry person. So I practice it. I'm not perfect at it, but the trust, it got so much bigger with all these aspects, the esteemable acts, these, this, that, it, it just contributes and you just keep building on it. How about you, Chris? No, I, I appreciate that because I think what, what I'm hearing you say, Danny, is that by opening yourself up to trust and trusting in yourself, especially in a time where you're um, kind of going through your, your journey to sobriety, that you have to take that risk, right? And I think that's where I'm hearing people right now who are dealing with trauma, who are unwilling or scared of that risk. And, and I think what you just said gave me a lot of pause. Thank you. And Danny, congratulations on that. You know, I was about to say the same thing, which mirrors yours. Laura, before I say anything further, I'm going to add a disclaimer to this on what I'm about to say. Because, of course, I'm the opposite gender, so I think from a man's point of view. Neither Danny and I are qualified psychologists. We're just experienced in this regard. Yes, it is a choice, but let your journey of recovery play out. There will be certain highlights in your walk where things will start to come together like a mosaic or a jigsaw puzzle. That's it as well. It's never easy. Shall I repeat? It's never easy. I think now where a lot of people have started to talk about trauma is courtesy of the fact that because of this pandemic, we've been forced to take literally a good long look at ourselves because life as we know it at the time came to a grinding halt and a lot of these themes started to rear its ugly head. Uh, I'm an incendiary critic of the media, but I think the one thing which was good that came out of it was a miniseries called Dirty John, which started to highlight the fact of abusive relationships, abusive marriages, and abuse can take more than one form. Not necessarily just physical, but emotional and psychological. People who are narcissists will illustrate the thought in your head that you are absolutely mentally incapable. That's the negative. The positive is there are people, and this is what helped me as well, start talking to people of similar mind, not necessarily people who consider themselves experts. I say so because they've got literary knowledge. They know the core of it, but they may not have experience, physical hands-on street knowledge, street cred, or uh, field experience in this given subject. That's the short term. But in the long term, there will come a time where you yourself, and I'm hearing you speak, you're a very, from what I hear, independent woman, long term, having gone through 
the array of knowledge from experts or from people who are advocates like Danny, like some of our other friends, things will start to click in your mind, which will ultimately bring you to the choice to start to trust again. The final thing is, it starts with you. Every morning when you look in the mirror, what is that visage you see in the mirror? Is it a complete stranger? Is it a monster? Is it a broken vase? Or is it a brand newborn butterfly? All these you ask yourself and take your time. Nothing good in life. Much like the title saying, uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, is true and succinct here. But if you start to become curious, as like what I said a couple of sentences ago, how long your arm is, start investigating. Try asking yourself, what is it that I love, that I, that Laura love? Does Laura love pottery? Does Laura love nature walks? And that positive neuroreceptors will start to open on a scientific level and everything will fall in place like a mosaic and a jigsaw. I hope that has given you a nice even keel from both of us. I appreciate you both and I'm going to take a step off the stage. All right. Thanks so much, Laura. Des just showed up. Did he? Our guest! Woo! Sorry to interrupt. Holy moly! My Kentucky. Yes, are you here? Yeah, I'm here, but I, I, I'm not. I can't see myself. Oh, except um, access. Yeah, if you press button. on that hamburger menu, there'll be an option that says "Turn on video." There you are. Hey! You know, I, I, I was trying to get in since ten o'clock, but it wasn't. But, uh, did you just allow me? Is that what happened? No. No, literally, your icon just popped up. Literally, like five bob ago. Yeah, because I was on. I had you. You sent. The, I had the email, and I, <laughs> I. I thought. I thought it was waiting for you guys to sort of like be ready for some. Uh, yes, you know, that's what it was. The, like they, a lot of people. Yeah, they were. They were, <laughs> they were being very. They were being very cautious about allowing me into Fireside, the app in general. I think. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because you're such a firebrand guy, and yeah. with that said, let me introduce our guest. When new talent in the realm of stand-up comedy begins to break through the international divide out of the UK, such names like Jimmy Carr, Ricky Gervais, Billy Connolly, Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry loom large. Respectfully said, though, the United Kingdom is mighty big. So where exactly does that leave the land of my people, Ireland? Do they provide more than just folk music and river dancing? Is the myth true that all Irish are privy to finding pleasure from the bottom of a pint glass? Well, since the 2000s, world watch out! <laughs> Brendan O'Carroll was one of the first to break through the mold with his portrayal of a hard-drinking, foul-mouthed matriarch and drag in Mrs. Brown's Boys, which has enjoyed success on live stage as well as an eponymous television franchise. Now cue another bright spark, and he doesn't need a feckin' brew. In 2004, the name Des Bishop became known through his docu-comedy program, The Des Bishop Work Experience, which followed after years of honing his skills as an observational comic. Since that time, Mr. Bishop has kept busy as a popular stand-up, headlining many festivals and tours, which include Just for Laughs in Canada, as well as the Melbourne Comedy Festival in Australia. He has successfully produced and hosted many companion TV shows, and he has even competed on Dancing with the Stars. His comedy on stage is raw, no holds barred, which even includes themes of poverty, his own experience fighting cancer, and many other socioeconomic issues. If misery loves comedy, Des Bishop encompasses that both make perfect bedfellows, and he makes us pee ourselves while doing it. We are absolutely enthralled to have him on our airwaves, on DIS Live, Ladies and gentlemen, 
Yes, Bishop, make yourself be known, my friends. Longest, uh, longest intro I've ever had in the history of my... In the, in the history of my uh, doing uh, doing interviews, You're speechless. <laughs> well, you can't, can't, can't put Ireland and the UK together. That's the only thing that Irish don't like that. Uh, of course, of course. And I knew you were going to say that, and I thought I'd take the risk. They fought for their freedom. That's right. There was no, a war. Naturally, no. incomplete. Uh, anyway, we won't get into it. <laughs> you know, Des. Not only are you funny, you're you're very smart. I mean, I, I've I've listened. Well, I've followed you for a while, and I noticed you you have a lot of a uh, lot of knowledge about a lot of different things, and you have a, a lot of opinions on different things too, which I actually agree with a lot of them. But you've been sober since 1985. You said 95. You're aging me too much. I I, I would have been uh, I would have been 10 when I got sober if I was sober since 85. Ni- 95. No, uh, July, July, July 16th, 1995. Wow. I'm curious. How did it happen? Like, what was the, what was this, you know, the main moment where you're like, oh my God, it's too much. Well, you know, I mean, both my parents were actually sober. My dad was like an active member of, uh, of AA. And then my mother was like, I guess, a dry drunk, you would say back in those days. I feel like it's a little judgmental these days, but back in the, <laughs> In the 90s, I guess she was like a dry drunk. She was a, a white knuckler. Um, but uh, so I started drinking when I was 12, but 14, I got caught a couple of times. So actually, my mother was like in my head from the age of 14 telling me that I had a problem. I mean, literally everybody in our family is uh, alcoholics, like her parents, my dad's parents, all her, well, not all, but some of her siblings, uh, just a lot of, a lot of alcoholism. And a lot of pain that my my mother experienced in her own childhood from her parents' alcoholism and then her own life. So there was just a lot of like uh, alcoholism paranoia, which I feel like I was lucky with because they had it in my head that it probably gonna, wasn't going to work out from when I was fourteen. <laughs> God. <laughs> I joked, my, in, in my show, I joked that I got kicked out of school when I was fourteen because I had a problem with alcohol. And then my parents had this ingenious idea to send me to Ireland to go to boarding school, which is actually like. A joke. It's not a hundred percent true. Uh, in that, I, I was drinking too much when I was fourteen, but it wasn't really the reason why I got kicked out of school. But it was like one of the symptoms of my own, I guess, discontent uh, at that time. And in the madness of all that, my I went to Ireland to go to boarding school, which is why I live in Ireland. And uh, it gave me, I guess, a reprieve a little bit from the madness for a while, like the structure of boarding school. But then by the time I was uh, sixteen, it all started again, and the I got, I was like, I was lucky. I was blessed with uh, an inability to not get violent in blackouts. And I was also blessed with an inability to not drink to a blackout from a young age. So by the age of 17, I knew that uh, alcohol caused me like major, like very bad uh, results. So I actually went to my first AA meeting with my father when I was 17. And uh, so... Because I remember him saying to me, like, oh, you know, when it comes around to you, you don't have to share. But I was, like, listening to everybody. I was, like, identifying with everything. So uh, I only lasted another two years. So I got sober when I was 19 because that never stopped, uh, you know, the, the the blacking out and the violence and the bad results and the losing friends and things. And then I had the great idea that when I take drugs, I don't get violent. So I, I <laughs> tried to take <laughs> You know, I was, I was very lucky because I just was, like, very protected from worse outcomes because – 
you know, all you could get your hands on in my uh, first year of college in Ireland, you know, it was like ecstasy and like some, some like light amphetamine, like nothing, you know, nothing crazy. It just wasn't a lot of drugs uh, in my, you know, I didn't have access to a lot of drugs. So from whatever I could get my hands on, I, I ran, I ran the gauntlet w- very quick and I was so mentally, I was so done, uh, uh, you know, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, by the time I even started taking drugs that just like the emotional breakdown from the, the highs and lows of other substances, you know, I was just, I was a wreck by the, by the summer of my 19th year. And I don't know why, but I just, I got lucky that summer I was in New York and I, I had been in and out of meetings for two years, but I don't know what it was. It wasn't like the my, July 15th that night wasn't, that was not my worst day of, of, of drinking, doing drugs. And, uh, but, but it was the last time that I drank, just something clicked at some stage during that, during that, that summer of 95. And I, I, you know, it worked for me. I mean, I know it's not for everybody. I don't know what your guys are, where, where you are on different. I can t- relate exactly to what you're saying. There's that aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just worked for me. I got very lucky actually, because I was going to Perry street. Actually, how open are you guys talking about like meetings and stuff? I didn't even check with go you. Go for it. Go oh, no. for it. There's and, no holds barred. on here. It's, it's. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I got very lucky with um, – so I, I started going to Perry Street, which is a famous New York meeting, uh, meetings all day. And uh, actually a bunch of lesbians kind of like adopted me. I don't know what – I guess because they were young too maybe. And they just like – they just pulled me to the side one day. It was actually like two or three weeks in. I was like very frustrated. Yeah. I was like – I was complaining that nobody was talking to me and I was like <laughs> – close to a slip actually so i said fuck it let me just express my frustration rather than hold it in <laughs> and uh he me, they grabbed me and they were like call this guy he could be your temp sponsor and i hung out with them that whole summer i just like uh we would drive around i had my mom's car and we would drive around and it was like they were, it was fun i would have never i'm a kid from queens i went to boarding school in ireland i like i wouldn't have had too much like exposure to like hanging out with lesbians in the village, you know, <laughs> it's, all pretty, it's all pretty exciting. I haven't seen, I, I totally lost touch with those women, but they really did save me. Like I had a great, I had a great summer with those guys and it, it just kind of, it kind of made it fun. And, uh, it, it gave me enough headspace to decide to go back to college and go back to Ireland and sort of restart. And, uh, I had been to meetings many times in Ireland, but I hadn't been successful. So when I went back with a bit more of a foundation, I connected with those, mostly NA in, in, in Ireland. NA was like a little younger and uh, like I got a core group of friends that are still like my closest friends today. But anyway, that's how that all went down. Well, you seem you're lucky to have your parents. Were you close with them? I mean, it, mu- it must be nice to have that seed planted. I didn't even know I was an alcoholic until I was in a hospital room, my stomach blown. <laughs> I didn't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, that, that part was lucky. I mean, listen, I, uh, my mother was... My, my parents both, but my, my mother particularly was, was, was tough. You know, the dry drunk part definitely led to some like unnecessary, uh, uh, stress growing up, but that's a, it's a, a separate conversation. I'm actually doing a show about her at the moment. So I'm very on top of my relationship with my mother, which was a very full circle relationship, uh, particularly by the time that she died. But the one thing you'd have to say is due to her own extreme paranoia about alcoholism. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was blessed with the ability to, to get uh, recovery young. You know, I had plenty of more destruction in me. I had, you know, like no way was I like at a, at a real, like at a, 
a rock bottom that could have been final. Like I had way more uh, mm-hmm. damage. So I was just very lucky to get uh, to to be to be pushed towards uh, the solution early on. Yeah. There's another You're- thing. You and I are similar in the fact that we're both cancer survivors. Oh. Yeah. What did you did have? You- I had stage three skin cancer. Yeah, I feel it was like a, that's it was a sarcosinoma that bordered on a melanoma. Oh, are you Australian, by the way? No, I'm South African. Oh, South African. All right. Yeah, but it's just, it's just these these uh, the European genetics in these Southern Hemisphere towns. I don't know. There's, there's... It's very confusing. I get you. <laughs> what kind of cancer did you have? And I had your to... cancer diagnosis bef- during or after you got sober? Oh, after. I was 24. Uh, I was testicular cancer, though. It was a young man's cancer. Really, you believe it's like the best cancer to get if, in terms of uh, dying? Like hardly anybody dies of testicular cancer these days. Uh, so it was quite shocking, and you know, like you don't I can well imagine. And I had a I had had a friend who had had it. Funny enough, a friend in the program actually who had had it, and he he had like. Uh, it had spread on him. So it was quite, when he got it, it was quite serious. Like he was in the hospital and then it came back on him. So he had like a bit more of a journey with it. So when I found out I had it, I thought like, oh God, you know, but it had, it didn't spread on me. So I, I just had the operation, like they removed the testicle and then I got radiation, but the radiation was kind of like to be safe, like preventative, just in case. It had Naturally. Sp- yeah. Hadn't sh- it hadn't, it hadn't shown any, any spread. So thank God. Yeah, it was it was quite scary, and obviously you don't want to have to have that surgery, or you don't want to have to do radiation. When, but mm. pretty small. Like it's funny, the word I feel is a word, the word cancer has a lot more uh, negative association than the experience that I had. But I agree you know, with you. When when I was able to get vaccinated early because of the. Uh, it, Mary, Governor Cuomo opened it up to cancer survivors, like literally, like the third group. I was like, "All right, well, I didn't really think my cancer was that bad, but I'm getting vaccinated." Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> now, well, I, I, obviously, it still works because I've uh, well, I've seen. I, I was I, I watched Summer House. You know, I know you're with Hannah. I love Hannah, um, but you were in the episode, and you guys were uh, doing it up all over the place. So I I, I know it still works. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we weren't doing it up in the. Kyle and Amanda's bathroom, but they made it seem that way. But, you know, (laughs) that's just, that's the way it is. But, uh, but other than that, yeah, no, it still, it still works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, honestly, the other coincidence of that time was I had just started working on an Irish television show and the executive producer was actually a testicular cancer survivor. And he had three kids after having testicular cancer. So I didn't really have much of that concern because he was, he was like in my in my ear from the get go, being like, "It's okay, it's no big deal." And he he actually had to get chemo and everything. He his his had spread also. There's two different types of testicular cancer. The one my friend had and the one that he had are the ones that are more inclined to spread. I I had the other type, and uh, but yeah, either either way, actually, the whole not having kids thing was never really uh, a concern. But that does come up a lot, though. Like people are are concerned for me, but it's actually um, it's it's not really an issue. You mentioned something, and I think this is what a lot of people need to hear. Often the big C isn't necessarily the cancer scare. Often the big C is chemotherapy because it's essentially an acid that goes through the bloodstream. It uh, triggers nasty sort of sense and uh, 
your appetite goes out the window. I had more alternative treatments, but I think as well, what also came to light quite recently is the fact of cancer survivorship. You know, when you hear that word remission, complete remission, there's a sort of a lingering sadness that happens, which was in my case, because, uh, you know, you originally had that dark cloud over your head, is my days numbered, yada, yada, yada. Did you have more or less the same experience after you went into remission? I, I didn't really because it was just like, you know, the thing about testicular cancer is it's like so not threatening. Like I never had a sense of like even remission, you know, like they diagnosed it, they took it out, and then that was kind of it. So I had that five years of, you know, you have to go for checkups for five years. Mm -hmm. uh, but then like even after five years, like insurance companies don't even care that you had testicular cancer. Like, so it, it never really, I never really had that much of a kind of survivor feeling. I remember there's a cancer support center here called ARC. And uh, I went to, I went to a couple of groups in there and I, I remember being a bit emotional early on, you know, in there, but I, I didn't have that much of an emotional connection with survivorship per se. You know, the only real emotional connection I had was with getting the message out there for young men to check themselves. And then sometimes men would message me and be like, Oh, I saw your jokes or I, I, I checked myself cause I saw you had an interview and it turns out I had testicular cancer. You know, mm. that would be more of a thing of like, it's good to, get the info out there. But because it's such a non-life-threatening one, I never really had that sense of survivorship. And I've always felt like, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I remember I, I hosted a gig for this teenage cancer charity. It's canteen, really cool organization. And I was joking with them about how like, you know, I'd meet some girl and she'd be like, what'd you have? And I'd be like, testicular cancer. And she'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like, I mean, is testicular cancer even cancer? Like, like cancer. <laughs> but, but, but all joking aside, I always felt like, you know, I didn't really feel like I belonged in the same room of suffering as like, you know, somebody who had like, you know, uh, you know the pancreatic cancer or something like that, you know? Of course. Let's get to your comedy. Now, I'm always fascinated by the mind of a stand-up comedian because they're humorists, they often use words, imagery, symbolism to elicit humor. Whereabouts did you start to realize that you could twist all that and make people snigger, giggle, and guffaw? You know, I mean, I never really, I didn't have much of a kind of a thinking about it moment. I, you know, my dad would always joke with me in the 80s. You know, there used to be a lot of stand-up on TV in the 80s in the, in the States. Mm -hmm. And I would always be watching it. I just thought, you know, I just loved watching it. And my dad, I remember saying, well, you're going to be a stand-up comedian. But like, it never really entered my mind that I would do it. And then it was actually, I was in, it, was, it was through the program. It was like a member of the program was a resident MC of this comedy club in Cork in Ireland. In Ireland. And I was already doing drama society in college. And I, I, I mean, I was trying to get on stage, but I, I never thought about doing stand-up. I, I, I really didn't. But because we started going to this comedy club with him and I was getting up on stage for they have a joke competition, not like an open mic, not like a who wants to try stand-up, literally get up and tell a like a Irishman, Scottishman, Englishman walk into a bar type joke. <laughs> and then the biggest round of applause would win a bottle of Buckfest, would actually win a bottle of booze, which was hilarious because I... <laughs> <laughs> but 
I used to like getting up and telling the jokes, but I was still then. I wasn't getting up thinking like I, I want to do stand up, but I guess I subconsciously I was. And then one time I got up and I, before I told the joke, I don't know, something had just happened. And I just started kind of like telling the story of what just happened. And, you know, it was after that that my buddy, the resident MC guy, said, like, that's it. Like, I, you know, he had already been saying it to me, but he was like, that's it. Like, you're literally doing it. You don't even know you're doing it and you're doing it. So he gave me two weeks and uh, I did my first show. So he, he really, he kind of pushed me into it rather than like me having thought about it for any length of time. Mm. But the minute I did it, that was it. That was all she wrote. It was a addict moment. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was, I was addicted. You know, I was, I was into it pretty quickly, and and I, I, I knew within a very short space of time that this is what I was going to do. Wow. Now I was thinking about your Mama Mia show, and you know, it's your show. You're the only one up there, so you have to come up with this entire bit of. Like a whole comedy act, I can imagine that's pretty stressful. Well, you know, with a show like that, Mia Mama, by the way, Mama Mia is the uh, oh, the ABBA, Mia Mama, ABBA, the ABBA musical, uh, Mia Mama. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's I deliberately did it that way, you know. But uh, Mia Mama just means my mother, you know. But uh, anyway, with a show like that, with a show that like commits to being a stand-up, well, really more like a one-man show about. Uh, death really but also about relationship with your mother and uh there's actually it's pretty at times it's it's deep enough like legacy of trauma i go right back into like the the various levels of suffering that led to the way that my mother was and the way that i am uh and uh but so once you commit to a show like that you say this I, i'm gonna do something that talks about death and a complicated relationship with a, with a mother it's a bit of a process it's a lot of trial and error uh mm -hmm. Some 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 funny bits are easy to find in that, like you're going to do some jokes about your childhood. It's very easy to do funny jokes about, you know, growing up in the '80s versus now. Uh, you know, getting hit and wooden spoons and all this kind of, you know, all that type of stuff is pretty pretty easy to find the humor in. So that gives you a, a little bit of a a little bit of a buffer for when you want to drop a little bit more serious stuff. The hardest stuff is being funny about the serious stuff. Those are the hardest jokes to write because you got to get that balance right. Um, and then when you when you start to feel like you have enough of the raw material, then it's just about getting the pacing right and deciding, you know, what areas are best to focus on. Because, you, you know, most stand-up, a show like this usually tends to be like an hour max. So, you know, you want to make sure that the, the, the best stuff is in there without – you don't want it to just be laughs all the time because how can you do a show about your mother dying and, like, it not be at least somewhat poignant at times. It wouldn't be a fair reflection of the experience, but you don't want it to get, you don't want to get stuck in the mud of grief or, or you know, right. you want it, you don't want to be too morose. So that a lot of that stuff is just trial and error, you know? Yeah. Well, right. you know what? I actually love that layman's approach to humor because I interviewed um, Frank King. I don't know if the name might sound familiar, a comedian out of Oregon who called himself the mental health comedian. All right. And I presented the question to him one time, misery really loves comedy because a lot of the anecdotes that are told on stage, name all the greats, Stephen Wright, Alan King, George Carlin. Um, I did say Stephen Wright. Um, all of the, the heavyweights, they are transparent, but they just have that edge. So... I'm often inclined to think that humor is a 
God-given talent. It's not just something that can be manufactured. You can write a joke, surely. Excuse me, that was a tongue twister. You can write a joke, surely, but you never know where it's going to land. And especially in this era of PC culture, how do you know to skate the line or even step over it if you're so brash? Uh, well, in this case, it's easy for me because this is all just like personal to me. I, you know, like, so it's actually, in re- well, whatever about the PC part, but even just like in terms of, you know, uh, what what's acceptable and what isn't or where's the line uh, in a show that's quite personal. It's, it's pretty easy to, to know where that is because it's like these, this is my life, uh, like it or, or lump it. Uh, but all jokes to a certain degree are trial and error. Like if you look at like George Carlin's a great example, because not, not that I'm saying I'm as good as George Carlin, but the, the somewhat thematic nature of a lot of his shows and a little bit more sort of, you know, long, long form storytelling of his, particularly like his later stuff. Uh, I would like, I would like aspire to that, but uh, like he would obviously have still had like a lot of trial and error and getting the pacing right. And, you know, knowing when to do his like fast talking and knowing when to sit back. So all the comics, but a lot of that is craft. I know you're saying it's like a God-given talent, which is obviously that's part of it, but there is a lot of craft to it. There is a lot of, there is a lot of learning. Uh, and obviously the more you, the more you do it, the, the annoying thing about standup, which is like a good and a bad is that your, your material always gets better the more that you do it. And sometimes it even gets better after you say have recorded it. Uh, and it would be goes out to uh, you know to to the masses. You can still do it after that. It can still get better, uh, mm-hmm. you know. So like a lot of things, like a film or even a play, you know, you hone it and then you put it up. Whereas a stand-up is like you think of something funny and you put it up and it you know it keeps getting funnier, but you're still performing it. So you know, sometimes it's not fair for the audience. Sometimes they haven't seen the best version, but then sometimes it's like annoying for you. Cause you're like, shit, I fucking recorded that. And now it's like way better. <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of time, but I, I you know, I want to ask you about your sobriety. Uh, have you, have you had moments in all those years, you know, with your sobriety thinking, you know, maybe I should take a drink or, how did you how did you deal with different fears and things that that came up or were you just a really solid uh, guy in sobriety I mean I was a solid guy in sobriety in the drinking and using sense but you know like life 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 was way more difficult than <laughs> than the staying off the drugs and alcohol uh, you know like I and it's funny because uh, there's, I feel like there's just much more awareness in modern days. It's like in society these days, there's just more awareness about mental health or, you know, spirituality, looking after yourself, well-being, what all the different words that people like to put on these things. Uh, yeah. We used to think we were unique. I remember, you know, like all the Irish guys, all of us in early recovery, we were like, well, we're the lucky ones because we were so fucked up. We were forced to work on ourselves. And the rest of these people, <laughs> the rest of these people out here have no idea you know, because they're just out there getting by and they don't have a fucking care in the world. And of course we were wrong. They did have a care in the world, but we were right that we were lucky to be forced to look after ourselves. The good news is that I feel like it's, it's more mass media now for people to talk about stuff that we used to find quite unique at meetings. They, you know, like like 30% of all podcasts are about mental health. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, talking about different uh, means of dealing with their anxiety, dealing with their depression, you know, all all this stuff is out there, which I, you know, I I find uh, really healthy. 
and I also think it's great to just completely normalize like that life is tough. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, I, I, I've, I've experienced I can identify much more with everybody now than back in the day. I used to think that we were the fucked up ones. We were the sort of the chosen few that were tortured. But uh, but now I realize that we, you know we're all we all have our our stuff. And uh, and and God, I've had I've had plenty of struggles, broken relationships, you know, grief, illness, uh, my own mistakes, you know, the repercussions of my own behavior. You know, I've I've. I've, I've run the gauntlet of all that with uh, success and failure. So the, so the, the booze alcohol, uh, the booze drugs part, uh, really not much, uh, not much temptation. And even though I live a life where I'm around the, that stuff, uh, you know, it's actually like very unattractive to me. Like it's to this day, I just, it just, I, there's very little about it that appeals to me, but uh, yeah, God, plenty of, plenty of uh, life struggles. Yeah. Are you uh, living in Ireland? Is that where you're? I, I split my time. It just, uh, you, you've kind of come into my orbit at an odd time where I was in the States for almost all of the pandemic. Uh, and then during that time I met Hannah. It's all, it's all happened like during the pandemic. So for the first time in my, in my Irish life, which has been a long time here, I have like more going on in my life in the States. So I mean, I'm I'm a bi-coastal guy back and forth, but I probably find a bit more going on in the States for me now. But currently I'm in Ireland because I'm doing all my 2020 postponed dates. This show, Mia Mama, that we've been talking about was supposed to be in 2020. And I had only done I had only done six or seven weeks of it when the world shut down. So I'm now doing mostly about 70% postponed dates from 2020, plus a few dates that we added. That's awesome. I, well, I read you. the reviews. I you're getting raving reviews that people are uh, people keep you know, saying that, but that's because I'm posting all the positive ones. I'm not posting, you know, the people that are like, you know, I cried your whole show and I wish I didn't get in touch with my feelings and it was supposed to be funny. And I'm now, you know, that's the thing. They, they did. They said it was therapy too. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah, I, I posted that one. Yeah. That was good. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Des, I think I speak on behalf of myself and Danny and our audience here. Well done, and especially well done on finding a niche for yourself. And you know what? May you always have food and raiment, a soft pillow for your head. Should you leave the earth after this day, may you reign supreme in the heavens above for 40 years before the devil knows you're dead. But for the time that you're here on earth, may you live to be a 100 with an extra year to repent. Oh, thank you very much. That's what the Chinese say, e bai sui, 100 years. That's, like, that's what they say when you sneeze. Yeah, you. Uh, how long did you live in China? Two years. Next, that's the next podcast, right? You guys are wrapping up. <laughs> yeah, but I, how long did it take you to learn Chinese? I mean, it looks like it sounded like you really knew your stuff. I mean, I, you know, I started like I started having comfortable conversations six, seven months, but eight and a half months, I was able to make people laugh on stage. But then after a year, I was pretty good at doing jokes in my broken Chinese. But then I ended up spending another year there because I liked it so much. So at the end of two years, I was pretty good at performing in uh, I was performing in Mandarin because I, I started going out with somebody, and uh, you need to you need to be quick when when you're having a when you're having an argument with your girlfriend. You need to <laughs> you learn quick how to fucking you know speak fast enough to keep up with the argument. You know. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I can't yes. thank you enough for joining us. I'm so glad we got got you on. You know, yeah. Sorry. Sorry for being late, but I, I genuinely was trying to get on. They weren't letting me on. Not a problem. 
stuff Thank like you. that happens. Thanks a lot. Ladies and gentlemen, Des Bishop on DIS Live. It was great to have you. And plus, also, remember, there will be, at one point or another, giveaways if you participate. We also participate in Q&As. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Or, like with Laura here, I'm going to start dragging people out of the audience so you can make your voice be heard. Laura, thank you so much for you. And Danny, thank you so much for you. Thank you. Have a great one, guys. God bless. 